0: Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I'm Brian Wilson, Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland.
1: Uh, Today we're very fortunate to have uh, our guest Shiloh Brooks on the pod today. Shiloh is the Faculty Director of Engineering Leadership Program at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he is soon to become the uh, Associate Faculty Director of the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization, also at UC Boulder. Shiloh, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about Shiloh's essay that appeared in Scientific America. Why did the Wright brothers succeed when others failed? So Shiloh, I just wanted to ask if you could kind of give us an overview of of your essay and kind of what spurred you on to write this.
2: Sure. Um, So I I initially got uh, interested in the Wright Brothers um, in 2015. uh, A wonderful biography came out by David McCullough, uh, which I read and recommend to everyone. McCullough is one of the great, if not the greatest public historian um, in America living today. And uh, I read this biography, and I at the time had no particular interest in engineering, no particular interest really, uh, in science. I was studying, uh, or teaching p- politics at the university of Virginia, but I, I just read this out of sheer chance and interest. And I was stunned, um, by the, uh, mental athleticism, um, uh, upright, sturdy character, uh, and just, uh, general, um, Uh, hardworking um, decency of the Wright brothers. Uh, In addition to solving one of the most difficult problems uh, in the history of science, the problem of human flight, they were just great people and curious. And I couldn't think of a a person or a human type that I knew of who compared to them on this score. Um, And so that's what got me interested in them. And then lo and behold, two or three years later, I found myself teaching uh, in a college of engineering Um, One of the best and one of the best aerospace engineering schools in the world in Colorado or the Air Force Academy, Boeing and Lockheed. Many of my students were aerospace engineers. And I was teaching in a great books program in the College of Engineering. And I got to thinking, what kind of model would I want to present to my students um, of great engineers and the Wright Brothers kept coming into my mind. And, and so I, could, I teach them now. I uh, have read all of their letters and uh, have read their published writings and, and thought, you know, this, every time I shared the story of the Wright Brothers with students and other people, people were just stunned by, by these two guys. And people didn't seem to know their story. And so it occurred to me that something needed to be said.
0: Now, one of the things you say uh, pretty close to the beginning of your piece, Shiloh, is you remarked that the Wright brothers didn't go to college or didn't have any technical training. Um, But this is not one of those opinion pieces that argues for people to drop out of school, right? You've got a different goal. So can you say a little bit about uh, what you're arguing for in the piece?
2: Sure. Um, My goal is not to get people certainly to drop out of school and not to get them not to major in engineering. Um, One of the things that was so striking about the Wright Brothers was the fact that they um, they accomplished this m- marvelous uh, technical feat, historic in the history of humankind technical feat, without any formal education, uh, without any u- access to a university, without any laboratory e- equipment, um, all on their own. And so I-, I got to thinking, how did they do this? Um, what was it about them that permitted them to do this? What what cultivated the cast of mind that permitted them to do this? And so by presenting their example to young engineers and scientists, my goal, as you say, was not to get folks to drop out of school. Um, it was to get them to think, about the kind of mind that would be required to solve a problem like this, and to uh, get them to think about what kinds of things might need to supplement engineering education, might need to supplement technical education, to make a person like or- Orville and Wilbur Wright, with a technical bent, uh, people who were also capable of being as creative, uh, as, as intellectually wide-ranging, uh, as dedicated, etc., as they were. So my goal is to, broaden the horizon of the engineer by using them as examples
0: yeah it sounds to me like it's a noble and worthwhile goal and it's also i think a goal of interest to our listeners um many of whom probably don't need me to tell them that uh the origin of uh many of the military academies is as engineering schools right and so our uh concern today these issues that you're bringing to our attention bear closely on the questions of uh, military education, what the proper background for an officer is, and whether it should be the case that uh, people who go to military academies get essentially what are engineering degrees with a little uh, icing of liberal arts on top. Um, How much liberal arts should there be in a military education? That's a lot like the question, how much uh, liberal arts should there be in an engineering education?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that seems right to me. And, you know, with the Wright brothers, I mean, you know, the, the the source of their liberal education, I mean, most remarkably didn't lie, as I said, in their in their formal uh, institutional education, they didn't go to college. Um, they had a home, a father in particular, and a mother who cultivated this curiosity within them. So if if you want to talk about liberal education and its nature and its character, certainly that's something that can take place institutionally. Of course, my goal, my job is to um, inject the spirit of liberal education into a place like a military academy or in my case, an engineering college. But with the Wright brothers, Um, They just sort of grew up in a home where there were books everywhere. Um, Their father encouraged them to read widely, wasn't too concerned if they attended school or not as long as they were at home reading. There were books on the shelf about animals. uh, There were books on the shelf about history. And they just sort of grazed widely. Their mother was a mechanical genius. She had gone to college herself, in fact, um, had studied mathematics and literature, would make them toys. uh they got interested in mechanics by way of her tinkering around the house with uh household uh, appliances and 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 being a kind of fixer-upper um uh, and and in addition to that um you know they uh they were just themselves hungry um uh, uh, people with a, a kind of spirit of exploration and so um if that's not provided in one's home um, and increasingly today, my fear is that it might not be, um, the, an institution has to supplement that, but there's no reason it has to take place in an institution.
1: There's a, there's a, there's a passage that you, um, in your essay about, uh, I think it's Wilbur visiting Paris and going to the Louvre 16 times. Uh, and writing letters back to his sister. And uh, you mentioned um, at the top of the show that you've kind of read their letters. And I'm wondering if you could just give a little bit more color to, to those letters, uh, you know, his reflections on going to the Louvre. You know, we don't, we don't necessarily associate engineers with wanting to spend a lot of time in art museums and then take the time to write about it to their sister back home in North Carolina. I'm wondering what those letters kind of added to your understanding of their intellectual depth and curiosity.
2: Sure. I mean, I was stunned by when I when I first of all when I saw McCullough just sort of mention, oh, that he had gone to the Louvre, and I thought, well, that's that's odd. You know, I, I, uh, <laughs> you know, he was over there on a business trip to try to sell uh, the right flyer to the uh, gov- the French government, and here he is visiting this museum not one time, not five times, but you know, a number of times in the in the teens. Um, so I found these letters that he writes home uh, to his sister. And what struck me most was uh, the fact that he would, he would visit a different um, arm of the museum, a different um, uh, set of rooms every time he would go. And he would, I mean, in detail, look at these paintings, compare painters to one another. And then he would write his sister about the uh, kind of, uh, what he thought were the, Uh, how do I put it, the, uh, the talents and skills of the various painters, but also compare them to one another. And he would not only do that, he would take a, um, a a painter like um, da Vinci and he would say, you know, the Mona Lisa um, is really not, uh, is really not all that. Like he would say, you know, it's really not that interesting. The best, his best painting is this other painting. And he would just sort of iconoclastically, you know, run roughshod through what you're supposed to think about art. Whereas today, you know, an American goes into an art museum and, oh, it's a Michelangelo and it's beautiful. And it's, oh, this is the Mona Lisa. This is the, and we have to sit and we have to look at it and we have to all acknowledge and shake our heads. He was like, nah, that's not that good. This other one's actually a lot better. And he just, he had, the, I mean, there was just no air of vanity about him, no, um, you know, none of this. And so just to see him, um, do that, and go painter by painter, uh, and that kind of detail, and criticize, and then he would, he, there would be some unknown name, a name, at least I'm not an art historian, that I had not heard of, and certainly wasn't as famous as the great names, and he would say to his sister, and in a hundred years, this person is going to be, you know, known as much better than all the people who are known great, as great today, and just that kind of engagement with um, uh, and appreciation of the medium um, was stunning to me coming from such a technical mind. And so this, you know, again, is another thing that turned me on to them.
0: Yeah, so lack of respect for disciplinary boundaries, right? Not a strong sense of needing to stay in your own lane or only pronounce on what you're an expert at, right? That seems like an important element of it. Um, independence of judgment, right? Having your own reasons for things rather than just accepting the reasons given by others. That seems like a strong element too. But let me push you on this a little bit because you you make the case that uh, the p- problem of flying is a problem that combines um, artistic and technical aspects. And when you describe the artistic aspects of uh, the problem of flying, you largely concentrate on um, the technique of flying. Um, Are you trying to make the case that that kind of technique is a liberal art itself, or is somehow related to the liberal
2: arts? Or can you say a little bit more about that side of of the Wright Brothers? You mean... to be platonic the pilot's art is that what yeah that's that's what i mean something like that yeah (laughs) um well just uh from a um you know from uh the point of view of the development of the actual craft um and then we'll get into the pilot's art i think one of the the wright brothers themselves thought that one of the things that made them different was that they would be able and they would try hard to actually spend time in the air because you had people who were trying to create flying machines. um, But the total time spent in the air over the course of one or two years would literally be, you know, eight minutes (laughs) over the course of two or three years. The rights understood that we can, we can get something in the air. The question is whether we can stay in the air long enough to figure out how to control it. Because the standard for a successful flight machine at the time, certainly for the US military, was that the thing had to be able to take off and land from the same location, from the same place. That's very different from a glider where you jump off of a mountain and then you land at the bottom. And not only did the military want it to take off and land from the same place, but they wanted it to fly something like 40 or 50 miles and be able to carry two passengers. And so the Wrights saw that the real way to solve this problem, once you got over actually keeping um, a craft in the air and a motorized craft. People could glide, but to have a craft that could propel itself was a whole different situation. Um, So once they saw that if we can get over the technical hurdle of of building the craft, we've got to spend time in the air because no one understands how to warp the wings or if you're even supposed to warp the wings, how do you control this thing? You know, people were saying, oh, it's like a bicycle, which the Wrights knew very well because they were bicycle uh, uh, salesmen and makers first, the Wright Bicycle Shop in Dayton. And so people were saying, well, you've got to lean your weight to either side, that's how you control. it. Uh, You've got to do this and that, and the Wrights were the ones, and this is where the liberal art comes in, right? they were interested in birds, deeply interested in birds. They had read in their home, because there happened to be on the shelf, books on animal locomotion. And so the Wrights began to see that it wasn't, about, it wasn't about flapping, it wasn't about leaning, this is not what seagulls do. What they do is that they torsionally rotate their wings. And so the Wrights developed this extraordinary poly system, and this gets us to the pilot's art, by means of which uh, when you see flaps on an airplane today it's the same principle, by means of which they could, they had these canvas wings, they could pull a lever and it would warp the shape of the wing torsionally the way you see flaps on an airplane they do the same sort of thing today and that that would be the way and then of course the question was well how do we warp these wings to get it to go left and right and up and down and hem and yaw and these kinds of things and so Um, This was their great, um, their great innovation. But with respect to the the particular question of the pilot's art, um, you know, one of the things that they saw was that this was going to be a delicate literally a kind of delicate art form and you know this you know when you're in an airplane with a bad pilot we've all it's all happened and we know when we're in an airplane with a good pilot and you don't know that you're even not in the air anymore when you land you're like are we still flying or are we not still flying that is the kind of delicacy that it requires it's the same thing when you play the piano uh, or play the cello the delicacy with which one can massage the instrument to get what one wants out of the instrument the Wrights saw that flying would require as it does today, just as playing the cello does, thousands and thousands of hours of practice to get to the point where um, it it was effortless, or at least it felt effortless and looked effortless uh, to those onlookers. So they began to see that uh, this wasn't just a a matter of um, engineering uh, in, uh, you know, engineering inventiveness. Engineers typically try to solve problems by, you know, bringing in a hammer and a bunch of bolts, and it's kind of like this manly, you know, violent, uh, crude thing. And they had that in spades, but they also saw that there had to be a kind of dance done between the pilot uh, and the plane the same way that a couple uh, on a dance floor dances. And they had that, um, uh, that nuance about them.
1: I like that metaphor a lot, you know, having gone to the Naval Academy and having a decent amount of pilot friends, um, you know, a lot of them describe flying as, um, you know, I'm strapping the plane on my back, you know, and and just, just that idea of like, I'm not getting in a plane, like I'm strapping it on my back. seems much more similar to what you're talking about with the dance floor, with the dancers on the dance floor and that artistic temperament that's necessary. And the idea of, you know, rather the engineer's brute force, you know, I will make nature submit to my will (laughs) approach (laughs) versus the, I'm going to try to harness these natural forces seems to be the approach you're describing, you know, in the, I, I'm sure it, it, you, you mentioned it in the essay and, and maybe McCullough dealt with it um, a little bit more, but I'm wondering if you can talk more about that, that idea of kind of the evolution of, you know, the airplane from glider to plane and how that kind of harnessing nature approach maybe was unique to the Wright brothers versus, you know, previous attempts that were trying to kind of bend nature to, to man's will.
2: Sure. I mean, the most famous, well, I mean, there are a number of, of, of great uh, people in the history of flight. Uh, and I don't, I, can't, I don't have time to elaborate them all here, but the one that would be um, most relevant to your audience, and certainly an American audience, um, would be um, Langley, Samuel Langley. And you should, uh, everyone listening, uh, should look up Langley's aerodrome, photographs of Langley's aerodrome, on the internet once, we, uh, once you're done with the podcast and compare photographs of the aerodrome to the Wright Flyer. And one of the things that you'll see, and I, I, I do a, a, a kind of presentation on this uh, when I, where, where I show Langley's aerodrome, the Wright Flyer looks like it's gonna fly. I always say, if, if, you, if you were a person who had never seen an airplane before and you walked up and you, and, and into a field and there was this contraption that turned out to be the right flyer, it wouldn't take you five or 10 seconds to say, you know what that does? I've never seen that before, but that thing flies. The same way if you were uh, a primitive man and you walked upon, uh, came upon a canoe in a river and you'd never seen a canoe before, you'd be like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm getting in that canoe and I'm heading out of here. That's exactly what that does. Langley's aerodrome, there's no question in my mind that when you see that thing, it does not look like it's getting anywhere near getting in the air. Uh, It was attached to a houseboat. Um, It was huge. It had like eight wings. I mean, it was just insane. And this is what the Smithsonian Institution was funding. Um, And there's a huge scandal that erupts about this, which I can get into. But at any rate, um, the rights, you know, all due respect to a lot of these folks. um, You know, there were other folks. I've got photographs of people, um, uh, Lilienthal, uh, who has a... uh, he straps wings to himself and he's got like he's you know, he actually like is a kind of like a like Iron Man or something. like he thinks, you know, we could flap our wing. I mean, it's just the craziest ideas you can imagine. And all these people look like cranks and the right people, the Wright brothers take this seriously. There are people who are making crafts that actually like they make these gliders that just look like birds and they're like, this is it. This is a typical engineering solution. If you want to fly guys, what we have to do is just make a bird and get inside it. Hello, you know, and the rights don't they're not that they're thinking no, no, this is a there's a much more elegant way of going about this. And so, um, you know, in the, in the long history of flight, the rights do owe a great deal to a lot Uh, of folks who came before them, especially with respect to uh, gliding um, and the art of gliding. Um, But the Wright's great innovation was, you know, first of all, the wing system, the fact that they could control the craft. And second of all, that they could, um, they made, they did a lot of experiments on propellers and motors and managed to figure out how to make a self-powered craft. So, you know, the the elegance with which they went about the pursuit of the problem was unlike anyone else in here. And I I know I'm going on and on, but one more interesting thing that, that you should know about the rights is that when they wrote the Smithsonian and said, can you send us tables of data on say air pressure, the way pressure affects, um, wings, um, they got these tables of data and these tables of data had been, um, you know, published by Langley and these other great scientists who were looking into the problem of flight, when they actually implemented or brought to bear um, these calculations on the craft, um, and it sort of made the craft uh, in accord with these things, made the wings uh, in accord with these things, they, they found that the tables of data were completely erroneous and wrong. And so that these great scientists um, at the Smithsonian who had published this information about air pressure and these kinds of things, their data, their science, their experiments were wrong. And so the Wright brothers invented or or created their own wind tunnel and they began to make wings and they began to uh, create their own tables of data uh, about air pressure And, and they say in their letters, at the time, we weren't, we weren't even thinking we were gonna be able to build a flying machine. We just wanted to correct the record and get at the truth because we saw that this massive scientific enterprise was utterly um, baseless and, and, and false at bottom. And so they had to do a lot of legwork um, and they were always very modest about this. It's not like they were like, and look at how idiotic these scientists are. They were very modest and they would be very grateful, but they knew that this stuff was was bunk, <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, you, you make really effective use in your in your essay of the the contrast between Langley and the Wrights, and the contrast between the cost of Langley's uh, failed project and the relatively low cost of the Wright's successful um, flying machine. Um, and it seems to me you you connect this to the thought that one of the um, contributions of the Wright family environment or family background was. Um, a separation of learning from utility or a separation of the idea that you should learn something from the, uh, the question of um, what it might be good for, right? <laughs> uh, what profit might come of it? Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you a couple things about that because that seems like um, – a really helpful educational thing to talk about, but also a really difficult problem. Um, On the one hand, if you have a non-profit or non-benefit oriented approach to learning, doesn't that mean you're going to waste a lot of resources? In other words, is there a kind of silent story or relatively silent story about the, the number of failed attempts you have to be willing to accept? And on the other hand, um, Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say family environments are no longer conducive to a not-for-profit view of education, if I can put it that way, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, In fact, our whole society is, I think, is pushing in the opposite direction. So how can a college or how can your program come in and inculcate this uh, willingness to squander or waste effort?
2: How do you teach that? I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right about the rights, Um, and they say um, in their letters and in interviews, time and time again, um, that their goal was never to make money, and they they say we did it because we were interested in it. Um, and and one of the one of the famous things they say is that other people were pursuing the problem of flight to get money out of it. We were pursuing bicycle sales to put money into it. (laughs) Like we we would take all of our profits and put them into flight. Everyone else was pursuing flight because they wanted to get money out of it by solving the problem. And Mm. so, you know, they always maintain this. And in fact, you know, they, they say, and I'll just, I'll I'll say that this is is a lead up to your question that even uh, after they solve the problem, they're made so miserable by the business um, uh, you know, the, the patent wars and these kinds of things which really take up the rest of their life. Um, And they they sort of say to one another in their letters and they even say in public, look, we'd be willing to sell it all right now. If we could get the right price and if the patent wars would end, we'd be willing to sell it all because what we want to do is take the profits and open up a a science lab. And we just want to continue experimenting. We don't don't want all of this. So that was their disposition. You're absolutely right that today's students, uh, when they come in, especially young engineers. Uh, Engineers uh, certainly at the University of Colorado are often some of the best students in their high school class. There's a barrier of entry to engineering. You have to be great at math and that's hard to do and so we get a lot of kids who are really good at math but a lot of these kids are in fact really good at a lot of things. It just so happens that they and their parents see that their talents in math could actually get them a job and so they come in and they find me and they're like, you know, I really wanted to major in philosophy, but my mom and dad would never permit that. I'm also really good at math. So it's really good I found you because maybe I can get a little bit of this on the side while I'm studying, you know, mechanical engineering. Um, and so you're right that that's, that's there. Um, and you're also right that um, the, they're not, uh, most people are not brought up in families where pedagogical failure, certainly when there's money on the line, um, or experimenting in general that's just not really permitted you need to go be successful today at 18 and you should get all A's and you should get the right internships and then you should go work for ball you know tomorrow you know what I mean and there's no and so you know this is one of the things that I think the rights show students is that you know there's this popular phrase in academia today which I don't like very much but I suppose it captures the um, the sentiment here people talk about failing forward Maybe this is only in the leadership literature that I read, the kind of impoverished leadership literature, fail forward. What failing forward means is that you fail, but you've also learned something that will make your next attempt better. And if, if you want modern, uh, well, not, not too modern, if you want a kind of classically modern exemplars of failing forward, the Wright brothers are those people. They just mm-hmm. over and over and over again, you know, they build the craft, it doesn't work, um, you know, or they're out on the beach at Kitty Hawk, this happens. Um, they build a craft that does work. It's amazing. They have the first flight and then a wind gust comes along and, this, and the craft goes flying and it tears, tears the whole thing apart and sets them back two or three years. And what do they do? They put it in a box. They put it on a boat. They go back to date and they rebuild it. They come back out. They do it again. You know what I mean? It's just and so the rights um, really embody this. And so that's one of the things that my program tries to do is expose students to Um, not just the history of science. I mean, it's one thing to read, you know, uh, Galileo and Descartes. It's another thing to read the history uh, and biography of people who had to persevere to create an invention and had to fail over and over again. And I think we've, um, you know, I think even engineering colleges have lost um, sight of this. Um, And so my program tries to uh, call to mind by way of examples in the history of science or even in politics, you know, people like Lincoln who, who was, uh, you know, who failed twice to get elected to the, to the Illinois Senate. This is part of life. This is part of being a, a great human being. This is part of, um, of, uh, achieving what it is you want to achieve. Um, and this, once you point that out to students and even to parents, they're like, okay, I get, I get it. But there is this uh, unhealthy, um, unwillingness to fail. We have limited resources. We have to invest them and get it right the first time in these kinds of things. I agree. It's a problem. Yeah.
1: I'm wondering, you know, I was, I was, this is, this is a great conversation for me. Um, and I, I I'm really enjoying it just because I was a mechanical engineer undergrad <laughs> and then went to St. John's. <laughs> and I, I, I think that, um, I think that what you're describing is potentially something like if you if the traditional schooling system has not beat exploration out of you, um, then you might be attracted to the liberal arts uh, because you can explore there in a, in a much more fully human way and you can kind of create your own path, whereas an engineering track or a math track is very much like, okay, you're going to do calculus and then you're going to do differential equations and then you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And there's yeah. not a lot of room to explore Within this highly structured um, system that is that is engineering and, and the you know quote unquote hard sciences, so I'm wondering if you've seen that with some of your students, um, you know who are you know in an engineering you know field or studying engineering, and then they come to your class. And you know, how do they react? Are they just like, wait, what are we doing? Why, why aren't I just doing practice <laughs> quizzes? Why aren't I just, why, how, how am I just doing thermodynamics right now? Because that's what I need to work on. Are they, so that's a- <laughs> are they excited about exploration? Does it rekindle it or, or what's going on when they experience that class?
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's um, what you say is, is largely true to my experience. Um, With with one or two exceptions, which I will mention, but I think by and large, the way you characterize engineering courses is correct. And and this is true. This is learned even in high school. The notion that there's a test and you get one shot to take the test and you either do well on the test or you don't. So as Jeff had pointed out failure not an option. You know what I mean? You, you have to, if you do well, and, and and so people begin to approach practical problems like they would approach the SAT. You have to get the high score possible the first time, but that's not the way the rights knew good and well. That's not the way it works. But with respect to, to your question, um, in particular about the way engineers react to my classes. So I get a couple of different reactions. Um, I think, In the beginning in my classes, there is a tremendous, uh, and this is the Wright Brothers helped me with this. There's a tremendous uh, burden on me to be a great used car salesman because people come in and they're like, I'm majoring in engineering, man. I'm not, you know, like I didn't want to read books. That's why I majored in this. Why do I have to get these credits? Why do I have to do this? So you get some people like that. And then you get uh, other people in the class who I told you about earlier who were like, man, I I really wanted to major in philosophy or music, but my mom was like, no way. Uh, so I'm so happy to be able to get a few classes in with you Um, and so you get you know these sorts of people um, those who are there just to knock out the credits and those who are there because they want to be and you have to sell it to the people um, who uh, are there to just knock out the credits and one of the things that they come to see at least this is what they tell me I don't like reading they say I hate reading I've never liked reading What does that mean you don't like reading but at any rate um, they will read a book with, with in, in our class, a great book, a St. John style book, a classic. And then they will come into, and we'll talk about it and such. And they'll tell me that they had never in their education read a book in this way before. And so it turns out they really do enjoy reading because they'd never actually talked about the book and the characters and, the you know, these kinds of things. They've never done that. And so you can slowly begin to win them over. The Wright brothers can be brought to bear on that because then you say, well, look at these successful engineers. Looks like they like to read books, too. And they had. And so you get. Uh, this slow buildup, and I'm telling you that before you know it, people are coming up to me and saying, you know, this is the best, this is my favorite class I've ever taken in my life, you know, and all these kinds of things. And the class, in large part, they say this because it is so different from the engineering um, classes that they have to sort of, as you say, do problem sets, uh, take a test, move on to the next one, you know, there's this very linear progression. But what some of them start to do, what some of them start to see, um, especially in aerospace, you know, I said CU is a big aerospace, I think, is that it? they start to see that the kind of wonder that is contained in these books, and the kind of wonder that the Wright brothers had is similar to the wonder that they have about space and things like this, that they start to see, oh, wait a minute, Um, this is actually speaking to the same longing in me that got me into aerospace in the first place and makes me wanna put a rocket on Mars in a colony there and think about how, you know, and they start to sort of begin to see that there's there's this tremendous longing or thirst in them uh, to wonder at the world. And that's why they got into engineering in the first place, but they may have lost sight of that because what they're focused on is tonight's homework problems. And so these books really do um, invigorate that side of them. Yeah,
1: I think that's a, a wonderful note to end on shiloh thank you so much for coming on the show um we're definitely going to link the essay from shiloh in the show notes it is a beautiful essay like it i'm i read it several times and i'm just like how is this like two and a quarter pages because it it, it covers so much ground the prose is is incredible um and i don't usually praise essayists um modern essays that often yeah. um but it's it's a beautiful story it's a beautifully written essay we're going to have it in the show notes along with uh we'll link to david mccullough's book on the wright brothers um i definitely want to go check out langley's aerodrome so we're going to link yeah. to that on there as well um and then shiloh is there any way for for folks to kind of follow what you're doing are you on any of the any of the media's
2: Yeah, I don't have uh, much right now, but what you can, I mean, because, you know, I I teach engineers, so I have to uh, be skeptical of all social media and technology uh, (laughs) to set a model for them. But there is one way you can find me. If you Google uh, the engineering leadership program at the University of Colorado, we have a news feed and you can see all the things that are going on in our program, uh, things that I've done, things that our students have done. You can read more about what we're doing. So check us out. Just Google uh, University of Colorado engineering leadership program
1: awesome well shiloh brooks thank you so much for being on the show yeah thank you you, shiloh
2: thanks